0: The following program contains language and themes which may not be suitable for everybody. And the way to handle this now is for us to have Walters call back, right? And just say, "Stay no out of this. Do you remember your President Nixon? We have a cancer within the close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing
1: daily.
0: The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. What really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts. Is if you try to cover it up. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain.
1: all night, what the young America? Welcome
0: back to episode six. Of the uh, that that the now epic, crow pod and heart and hand uh, Watergate fifty series here, and of course joining me Shane is uh, David Edgar. Hi, David.
1: Hi, Shane. Hello, everyone. It's nice to be back. Yes, very much looking forward to this. Slight detour today. Um, we're not quite, you know, we'll follow the story a little bit, but it's it's not quite the the linear thing. What we're going to do today is, I think, fill you in a little bit on the the kind of un Unsung heroes, the people that have been slightly and unfairly erased from the story of breaking Watergate, because history has recorded, and always will that two men did it. And that's absolutely fine, because they do both deserve a lot of credit. They went through a lot and they did some brilliant reporting, but they weren't alone. And I think that because of the movie, All the President's Men, uh, much more so than the book, but the book, of course, then becomes a forever document because of the, the movie, that they will always be placed in that in that category. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Bob Woodward and Carol Bernstein. And, and like I say, Shane, we're not here to throw shade at those two. In Absolutely
0: any- not, no. Fan, fantastic journalists. Well, yeah. I mean, they were. I'm, I'm not I'm not as convinced anymore. But oh, yes,
1: I, to be fair though, they're, they're, they're a good age. But yeah, I mean, Wood, yeah. yeah, Fifty Woodward, years
0: later, it's okay to to, to slip a little bit. Yeah, think.
1: Woodward in particular afterwards was a, a scoop machine. You know, oh yes, some sort of astonishing uh, things that he did. But I think that there, there were a, there were some who also served. There were other heroes there as well, and I think it's yeah. just time. 50 years, to maybe bring a few of those guys into the light, give them a little bit of credit for what they did because, yes, Woodward and Bernstein absolutely deserve a lot of the credit but they don't deserve all of the credit and sometimes they get that.
0: Yeah, well, in, in, in particular, in a man, again, you know, we've said this before in this series, if if your entire knowledge of Watergate before listening to us talk for the past seven or eight hours or however long it's been in the first five episodes is from the the film version of All the President's Men. There, there's a lot of well, there's a lot of missing parts. And one of the key ones and one of the ones that well, I mean, honestly, I just want to get to right off the top and, and roll through the this man's credits is, is Barry Sussman who was the uh, the 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 city editor at the Washington Post at the time the man who put Bob Woodward on what was effectively the you know just a court story mm. um I, I think we touched on this briefly that you know it was, it was Bob Woodward and and the the girl he was dating at the time Leslie Stahl who was working for CBS news uh who, who were assigned to this because they were, they were both fairly fairly new at, at both their outlets and uh, it was basically just, you know, th- this could be something, but, you know, let's just get down there. Let's get 30 inches out of this. Let's see what happens. And uh, um, Sussman really was the man within the the newsroom there at the Washington Post, Washington Post. Sorry, more, more than Ben Bradley, uh, of course, famously, again, lionized within the film by um, oh shit. What's his name that won the, that actually won the Oscar for it?
1: Jason Robards.
0: Yes, yes. And who is a brilliant, who, uh, brilliant, oh, brilliant amazing, actor. Amazing, amazing actor. And a and brilliant job in that film. I, I, Every time I I punch my desk, I think about him doing, let's run that baby, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, no, Sussman, um, well, the, All the President's Men, let's just start there, because this is where Barry Sussman starts getting wrote out of history, right? He's obviously mm-hmm. a key player in the book, but, uh, well, when it comes time to make a film, you have to make something that, that people want to watch. And, yeah. and as a, yeah, yeah. yeah, and, and as someone who was a journalist for the, the, about a decade and a half, I can tell you that a lot of what we do is very, very boring. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there, there's a lot of layers in terms of, of how, well, especially a story like that, a publication like the post that, that has to go through and they kind of consolidate Sussman's character in, into one of the other editors in the movie. And, um, well, and sadly, I mean, the, the the opening scene in All the President's Men is effectively lifted from, from Barry Sussman's own book about the Watergate scandal. And this was what, well, re- really started to drive the wedge. Him and Woodward famously, w- once the film, well, was being produced and then came out, did not really get along anymore.
1: No, um, he did not. He actually all. said at one point, I don't have a good word to say about either of them. Which yep. is... A real shame, but he failed. And I think with some justification that he'd been written out. Uh, but Well, well Richards, and
0: again, the, the fact that the movie lifted wholesale from his book, the whole opening book. scene yeah.
1: of, of um, All the
0: Presidents Men.
1: But it Again, you know, firstly, it wasn't really Woodward and Bernstein's fault because, as anyone will, will tell you who has been involved in any sort of production, writers are way down the list yeah. um, of important people, uh, especially book writers. Script writers will have a bit more input uh, because they are, you know, clearly uh, involved in the production. But your actual original book author very rarely has much. Uh, famously, of course, Rodal hated, hated. The the version of of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory hated yeah. everything about it. Hated the title. Hated the way it was written. Uh, disowned it totally because it wasn't his vision. And as right. Shane says, I think we are guilty of that sometimes of assuming that the two things are part of the same uh, part part of the same animal. They're not. A book in a movie. Uh, a, a book is a basis for a movie, especially a factual book. And as as Shane said, you know the most famous line from, or one of the most, there's several, but one of the most famous lines from this whole story is follow the money, which was never said. No. Um, but it's a brilliant line. And of course, imagine if they did. I mean, documentaries do this as well. Documentaries spice it up and change things and leave things out and move the order around because they're making entertainment as well as, as a story. So, uh, But as you say, that. They compounded this by then saying, "Yeah, but we'll take all this stuff he's written down, and we won't credit him in any way for it." Which, yeah, you know, typical Hollywood, I suppose. <laughs> well,
0: and to be fair, yeah, I mean, with Sussman too, he he had thought because obviously, I mean, he worked with Woodward and Bernstein on putting this book together because they were doing it again. All the Presidents Men is not the the final word on Watergate because it comes out in the middle of Watergate. Uh, it's not the, the end all story, which, which people think, I mean, and again, if you've seen the film, you know, that the last minute is just the ticker running off all the headlines that happened after they were done with the book and and where the film stops. But Sussman had thought he he was going to be credited as a co author on the book. And right there again is where this, this divide started. It was, um, Alicia, uh, Alicia Shepard. Uh, who's a like a journalism scholar historian? Uh, who, who said that? Uh, I mean, his omission from well being part of the book, and then his outright omission from the film. She said caused Sussman permanent psychic damage, and it it really did take. I, 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 I can tell you, I'm, I've been I've been in every single layer of the news industry from you know working the shittiest dumbest fucking local news. This guy grew a big pumpkin to, you know, helping take (laughs) down a a state Supreme Court judge. And I've been a reporter, I've been an editor, I've been a designer, I've done everything in this industry. And editors are always overlooked because their names are never on the byline, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who's working a sub-desk like Sussman is overlooked in terms of the masthead because, you know, who's on top? You got your publisher, you know, your editor-in-chief, executive editor, you know, and and all these other positions. To get down to the city desk, you really got to look down the masthead on a paper and, and you got to know what the hell you're looking for. And, and by and large people don't people, it, most of the people listening to this, obviously you won't have been journalists. You know, you, you don't know the role that someone like this plays. If it wasn't for Sussman's fight to keep them on the story in the first place, when, and this is something accurately portrayed in the film when uh, well, Watergate actually became a real story and, and we're not talking about the moment where uh, James McCord said, "The I worked for the CIA, very quietly in the courtroom on that very first day. It, it was months down the line after Woodward and Bernstein and Sussman, with uh, he, had, he had probably a bigger Rolodex than Bob Woodward did, as far as Washington people. When months down the line that this became obviously something much bigger than, than just a third-rate burglary, that Sussman was the one to fight to keep them on the story because they were the ones they'd gone out there and done the graft. It would have been very easy for Ben Bradley to turn around and hand this off to one of his more credited D.C. reporters, Washington, you know, national reporter, whoever the hell it is, and Sussman wouldn't let him do it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's a very fair point. And I, he was badly hurt. I think what happened is that the the agents like the story of the two young fresh-faced journalists. Also Absolutely. Two, two young journalists who were... Uh, polar opposites you had a lovely odd couple angle to it you had the button down republican voting bob woodward and you had the the hairy very kind of counterculture child in uh in carol bernstein now we've spoken a bit about the two of them uh in previous shows and we'll, we'll talk about more about them today bernstein famously almost left um because he was unhappy with his beat he had an interview at rolling stone but uh, Jan Venner, the, the the you know the legendary owner of Rolling Stone at back then, um, yeah, you know, it was a time of a lot of you know smoking drugs in the office. Anyone who's seen uh, the movie Almost Famous will understand that. And he just basically didn't get back to him, kind of forgot all <laughs> about it. And he said I'd have gone in a heartbeat. You know, Rolling Stone was so prestigious, so he had a, a reputation around the. The Washington Post newsroom for sort of inveigling his way into stories, uh, and he wasn't the most popular. Woodward felt he was a bit of a credit hog for his, uh, you know, for, for his own view of of Bob Woodward. Uh, Bernstein thought he was an atrocious writer; thought he was a terrible, terrible writer, and that's kind of why it worked because Woodward, as we mentioned, total scoop machine, great reporter. Yep. Well, it, it helps when you may writer. or may not
0: have. May or may not have been the CIA. But yeah, yes. we should, yeah, Yeah, we, but that, yeah. then, yes, yeah, so you have Bernstein there to, to put we, the polish on everything.
1: <laughs> we should address this. There have always been rumors that Bob Woodward was in the CIA. Now, obviously, he's not going to come out and say it. And obviously, the CIA aren't going to say it. What I will say is there's no paper trail of it. But that's not unusual, especially yeah. not for that period. However, um, if you listen to the story of how he got to know Mark Felt, is that he was in the, the Navy at the time. As the staff officer and he was bringing this is woodward was bringing some stuff again not unusual back then remember folks vietnam yeah. um post world war Two, still national service etc so the you know it, it's not unusual for someone to be in the military uh in that period most people most young people with ambition would do a stintian because you needed it on your CV, didn't you? Oh, 100%. famously, famously, Bill Clinton, you know, draft dodging became an issue for him. You, you kind of had to have served in the military if you had any uh, views of a certain type of career. But uh, Woodward is uh, officer, and he said that what happened is he was bringing some documents from the Pentagon over to the White House, and he was in a waiting room, and he met Mark Felt. They got to talking, and from that, the relationship built. I've always found it a little hard. To believe that the number three man at the FBI managed to build up that relationship with a younger, hungry type inside fifteen minutes in a waiting room. So you know, did they yeah. have other dealings together? has always been a question, and I think it's fair to say. That. Well, I,
0: I, you know, I, I think I mean felt felt shed a little bit more light on their relationship right before he passed, and when he finally had, you know famously came out and said, "Well, I, I was deep throat," um, but I I I have to feel wh- whenever we get to that point with Woodward, given his relentless self-promotion and the fact that he and, and John Dean are the two tied for the most appearances for, for anything dealing with Watergate yeah. Um that, you know, w- w- when he's getting to his last innings there, we, we might finally get a little bit more of the story or, or, or so, well, you know, the background on, on Woodward's uh, well, engagement with felt and, and w- whatever his, other roles or connections or whatever the fuck it was within government especially within the intelligence agencies
1: now i've always had as i say now you know shane and i also do for those of you who who only listen to us and this, shane and i also do a football pod and one of the things in football is you get transfer rumors a lot people who say oh i bumped into a director of a club and he told me Now, football directors don't do that. They don't bump into someone and unload all the (laughs) secrets of their football club to them, right? So if they don't do it, the number three man at the FBI doesn't do it based on a chance meeting either. So famously, of course, um, Woodward has this relationship, which Felt says, look, I'm not going to tell you what's going on, right? I will confirm things that you have found out. Yep. And again, I will
0: tell you, long time, this is a very common thing. It it does at any level of government when you're dealing with that kind of shit because people's jobs and lives are on the line. I don't care if it's the fucking city council or the fucking White House, right? Mm. You will have sources that will do that to you all the time. That Look, you go out and get the information that whatever you got, whatever you think is true, and then bring it to me and I'll tell you whether or not it is. Yeah, That happens all the time.
1: Yeah, because I think there's a moral dimension to that. Then you can you can tell yourself you're not leaking. Yeah, you can say, well, actually, no. He he had it already. I just guided him, and I made sure he wasn't printing lies. And you can almost paint yourself as as doing something honourable. As we've mentioned before, Mark felt lauded um for this. Mark Felt's intentions were not based in altruism for They we were not based on getting to the truth. Because no, again, you hate remember, Pat Gray. <laughs> remember he was the, the you know, he he was very high up in the FBI. He could have ordered investigations and been involved. He didn't. Um yeah. he wanted it in the newspaper because he wanted to make Pat Gray, who had been appointed as uh, the head of the FBI uh, temporary head of the FBI after Hoover's yeah. death by Nixon, he wanted to make him look bad so he would get the job, that was his motivation for yeah. it, um, so you know, doing a good thing, yes but for the wrong reasons, and uh, they have this relationship, so how does it, it, it begin well, Shane mentioned there you know the, the, nobody really thinks this is a massive story, they think it's about Knock about politics, you know they all do it. It's just somebody's maybe gone a wee bit too much in the campaign staff. It certainly won't lead up to the White House. All the stuff no. we've discussed. Um, but the the three of them, uh, Woodward, Bernstein, and 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 Sussman, they they think there's a bit more to it, and they begin to start writing these stories. And again, we've referred to this through the story. Now they didn't always get everything right. They famously there was the time that uh, they wrote that the treasurer of the committee to re-elect the president, the wonderfully named Creep, uh, a man by the name of Hugh Sloan, who was actually a pretty decent guy, pretty honourable, he resigned when he knew what was going on and he told the truth in court. (laughs) You know, not all of them could say that. Um, Well,
0: again, if if you remember the film version, he's the guy that's having the baby.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He had spoken to the or testified in front of the grand jury and uh, Woodward and Bernstein wrote that he had said that Bob Haldeman controlled a secret slush fund and he hadn't. Now, Bob Haldeman did control that slush fund, but he hadn't told them that. Um, He hadn't been asked about it. Uh, And this is actually quite an interesting one in terms of journalistic ethics, Shane, uh, I wanted to put to you. Uh, They felt that they'd been given bum information by an FBI agent called Angie Lano. And they angrily confronted him at the court and said to him that if he didn't uh, sort of admit and help them with a retraction, that they would go to his boss and tell them that he had been their source. Now that, I always assumed in journalism, was the biggest no-no Yeah, that's
0: no, you you never want to burn well, especially you don't want to burn a source, period. Unless look, I am not gonna look there there have been times I've burnt sources because their value runs out. And and typically it is around a political type situation wherein you know this person no longer has access to information or they're on their way out the door. You know, I, I have burned sources before. It's it's part of it's it is part of the job, and you gotta make a determination on that. But burning a guy in in, in Angelo's position, the FBI, uh, it, in the way that they did again, this is seen the movie where, it, where I think he said, like, "Oh, fuck off!" You know, like you're not gonna do this because you'll never get another goddamn thing out of us ever again. You know, and also you're talking about an organization as we've seen this week. The FBI can make your life pretty hellish if they want to, no matter who you are. Uh, that, 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 that doesn't, I mean, it just doesn't comport with, with two young reporters really just getting their start. Like, yes, they were doing great work at this point on maybe, well, on what would become the most important story in the country for the, I mean, since Kennedy's assassination. Right. Um, yeah. but no, I mean, at that level and trying, trying to put leverage on a career DOJ appointee You know, somebody with that kind of level again in the FBI in the federal government, not going to work out too well for you. And well, I think you know here's there's another distinction here, and and, you know this is something again I I like trying to clarify this stuff for people because background in journalism there there's there's different methods by which you go about gathering this stuff. Now you know Angelo and his role would have been background, right? He he would provide again confirmation and information, and he would actually provide. You know, I mean, he he gave them straight up leads on things. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he can never be quoted. You know, you're quoting somebody that's a first reference source. If they're on background, they're, they're the kind of position he was felt was deep background in the sense that nothing he said could ever be written. He couldn't be cited. He couldn't be quoted. Like, that's that's why he's called deep throat, because that is deep background in which nothing he says can ever show up in the paper because it'd be way too attributable to, to well again, I mean, we're talking about the at the time once Gray's in the job, the number two man in the FBI. There's not a lot of people with access to the information that Mark Felt had, and that's why. Yes, I I, I mean, he obviously tipped Woodward off. It wasn't just is this true, yes or no, you know, like circle <laughs> like passing a note in class. Like is is this is Marie Stans funneling money through this Mexican bank account? Why and you know, circle one. It wasn't that. He was leading them in directions, but again, that's, that's, that's that kind of role. And no, I mean, ethically, like I said, again, yes, I have burn sources when their value is up, but what they were trying to do at that point, because they were running into a dry spell famously, uh, right, right after the election, of course, and this is where you get Ron Ziegler, the president Nixon spokesperson, uh, a man Pretty crafty with words. I think he would still have a job in Washington today but based on Definitely. the kind of job he did back then. Uh, But of course, you know, he went on this media blitz right after the election because the Post ran out of stories. It ran out of scoops. Everything was kind of at a standstill. People weren't talking. Nixon had won and uh um that Ziegler was able to go out on the offensive and say, look, the Washington Post wanted McGovern. You know, they, they got their candidate a choice and that candidate got fucking trounced again he he won one state out of 50 he didn't even win yeah. his own state uh it's still the biggest presidential election landslide in history um that it gave the white house kind of a reset and what they thought was going to be well i mean they thought they'd won you know as we talked about in the episode prior i mean they sat paying the burglars you know yeah. they they thought they'd won and then you know even before James McCord gives his letter to John J. Sirica. Woodward and Bernstein start hitting another vein of stories. And there were reporters with the New York Times. There were reporters at Newsweek. I mean, there, there were a lot of scoops coming out across. Again, the, you know, the Washington Post becomes the focus because of the book and the film. And the fact, you know, Woodstein is, is something that just rolls off the tongue. But they were chasing a lot of stories that the Times was getting. Uh, they were chasing a lot of stories, again, that were showing up in Newsweek. They were chasing stories that were showing up in the, the L.A. Times because all of nixon's people were from california uh and so they weren't the primary source of information on this shit they just happened to be the ones in the best position to execute it
1: yeah no totally um and i think that that was the the the, you know the, the the key thing that was there that they were up against this you know they were up against the press elite and other press aren't Aren't paying much attention to this. No. Uh, this was something that they were quite worried about. At the, you know, Catherine Graham was saying, you know, if, if we're
0: but the such... the, pub, the publisher of the Washington Post, yeah, if if
1: we're <laughs> on such steady ground here. Then, you know, how come that the New York Times aren't interested? But they begin to get interested in it, particularly after the the, the intervention of Walter Cronkite. He yes. does a news segment on CBS and the White House go nuts. Charles Coulson gets to the 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 head of CBS and says, Oh yeah, I can't believe you're doing this. But Cronkite was Cronkite and he said, Well, I'm not cutting it. Um, uh, I'm not cutting that segment. Eventually, they managed to negotiate it down from 17 minutes to 14. Yes. for all the good that that yeah. did, but 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 uh,
0: but then he comes back the next day and does twelve more. But so. then he exactly <laughs> so uh,
1: he came. up. But then in steps, uh, a guy called Seymour Hersh. Now Seymour Hersh was the crack reporter, uh, or one of at the the New York Times. Yep. Uh, he had broke the My Lai massacre story uh, from Vietnam, and uh, he begins to get quite interested in this as well. And he begins to start getting stories. And and there's actually quite a funny thing that uh, him and and Bernstein in particular began to develop a bit of a friendship, but also a bit of competition. And uh, there was one point where Bob Woodward was off to visit a potential source. He gets there and Seymour Hersh had been there after my note saying... There's sigh. (laughs) Yeah, I've been here. uh, I beat you to her. Uh, So that that sort of thing was going on. But then the stories begin to come out. And one one of the big stories, and I love this, that comes out. Al Baldwin, the lookout guy, Yep. Uh, who we've told you about who had been Martha Mitchell's bodyguard for a week so was again able to Martha was able to phone journalists and say he, I know him, he's involved with Creep um, they, they get to him um, uh, the again this is the Miami Herald and he gives them all he knows but brilliantly he asks them I've just started dating a new girl, could you put in this that I am a swarthy ex-Marine. <laughs> and the journalist looked at this little fat guy and went, ah, fuck it. And puts in, in the paper <laughs> that he was a swarthy ex-Marine to get the story, which I think is great.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, you know, uh, look, uh, this collection of journalists right here, you know, as David mentioned there was Cy Hirsch. I mean, he won the Pulitzer in 70. In uh, well, and again, just to point out Sussman's role, when the Washington Post, when they won the Pulitzer in, in, for for their Watergate coverage in seventy two, you know, in coming up in seventy three, um, Sussman's name was the first one on the award. You know, yeah. it, it was Sussman, Woodward, and Bernstein, not Woodward and Bernstein. Um, but I mean, th- these are the great investigative reporters of the era tearing us apart. And and you know, Cronkite. There, I, I think we mentioned this on an episode prior. That this just goes to show you know, especially in the build-up to the election in 72. Right. So, you know, we're talking five, five months after the break-in becomes a story, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Break-ins in June, the election's the first Tuesday in November. Um, that Cronkite did spend this time on back-to-back programs, trying to bring this to the people. I mean, this is after the wright Patman committee that we talked about. This is after Well, the Senate had tried to set up a special committee prior to the election and, and just couldn't get any political traction for it. Uh, That Cronkite, you know, with all the gravitas and power that he had, could not get the American people to care about this. And this is at a time where, look, you got your news from three fucking places, right? You either watch ABC, NBC, or you watch Cronkite there on CBS. And that was it. Walter Cronkite was more knowable to people than their dads were. And he could not convince the American people that that this was a thing. And until... You know, Hirsch after the election really starts hitting on a vein, and then that gets the post going again because now felt, who's felt again, is leaking to everyone. Uh, uh, People uh, again, this is what the film does. It's oh, he only talked to Bob Woodward. No, he fucking didn't. He had sources all over the country. He talked to people in every damn newsroom that he could. He would leak to anyone that would listen because it was politically motivated for him. It was personal. It was it was a vendetta for him because he thought he should have replaced Hoover. And Nixon wanted Pat Gray because Pat Gray would do whatever the hell Nixon and Bob Haldeman told him to do. Yeah. And, I mean, Hirsch and, and Felt had a very long-standing relationship. He had a long-standing relationship with another, a number of journalists in the Times newsroom. And that's why when, when the post ran dry, because, again, I mean, Felt would not directly directly feed, you know, like fucking documents out of the FBI to people. But he thought that at that point the vehicle – that the Washington Post had provided was drying up. And that's why the New York times, especially that gap between after the election and when Woodward and Steven really got back on, well, you know, the money, follow the money, uh, where that, that was Cy Hirsch's golden moment in there. And actually, you know, obviously he kept doing this after out, and he ends up winning. Well, he, he, wrote a book. What was that? The price of power about, uh, uh, Henry Kissinger that, that won him the national book credits award. In, in 1983. So I mean, Hersh banked a few a few little shiny medallions to put on your bookshelf throughout all this too.
1: Yeah. So I mean, as we say, we we wanted, I think, to to kind of throw a wee bit more. There were other reporters that were on the beat and cracking good stories. Of course, once it hits its stride, once yep. it's where we are um, up into 1973 now, then you know. It, it, it was unavoidable. It was the biggest news story yeah. in the world. At well, point. it
0: well, And then you have so many parts of government that are involved in the investigation itself. I mean, look, you got people, it's different when you're trying to bleed information out of the FBI, again, mm-hmm. because, or, or, or even DOJ, mm-hmm. right? There are political, you know, presidential appointees in DOJ, the attorney general being one, and, and typically, you know, his staff. But most of the people in DOJ, including the FBI or lifetime political, you know, I mean, they're, 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 they're there. You know, mm-hmm. this is their job. Yeah. They do it no matter who the fuck the president is. And they don't want to compromise that. Whereas once Watergate becomes a matter, well, the, you know, the Sam Irvin committee that, that, and please go back and find the episode if you haven't listened already. Um, <laughs> once, once it reaches that point, now you have people that have to win reelection. Uh, you know, in the House every two years or in the Senate every six years. And therefore, it behooves them to, uh, well, you know, start placing information with, with journalists that they know in friendly places. And at that point, it doesn't become a story for the Washington Post and the New York Times and the L.A. Times and Cronkite there and CBS. It becomes a story in every single goddamn newspaper in the country because you have people in their districts who, as the dominoes start to fall, and you have Republicans like Barry Goldwater even coming and saying, Look, we, we got to bail this ship. That they're talking to people in their local districts. And because, you know, th- this isn't now where, look, we, 90% of us get our news from, you know, a few sources, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, one, the, the industry is destroyed, which is why I don't work in it anymore. Um, but, but two, y- you know, the, the, there was I mean, you got your your news from your newspaper the next day, wherever the hell you live, whether it was fucking Bentonville, Arkansas or Wichita, Kansas or Billings, Billingsville, wherever the hell you were. That's that was it. And that's who these guys within the House and the Senate and on the committees and the investigators and the lawyers, they started going to their local Woodward and Bernstein and leaking information to them. So now this information, I mean, that this is this is the great time of the, of the newswire. You know with the Associated press and u p i who Helen Thomas worked for um that you know all all this information would be fed back from bumfuck Iowa back into washington d c that again this would recycle the machine for people like Woodward and Bernstein and Cy Hirsch to be able to draw more on
1: yeah um and that that pretty much takes us i think back up to to where we were now with the with the story so I think we'll go into to a bit of that. Well, yeah, uh, let's yeah.
0: let's 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 grab. We're we're gonna grab one quick break here and uh, enjoy a couple adverts if you're listening to this <laughs> on the Club Network. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be right back. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, nineteen for me. Cause I'm
1: the tax man You remember where we were the last time, folks? If not, please go and check it out. (laughs) And uh, we've taken up (laughs) now. Um, Basically, now, Nixon is almost alone in the White House. He has not really seen anybody. His closest aides, of course, have gone uh, and are now mired neck deep in legal issues. The information about the tapes has come out. He has committed the Saturday night massacre, uh, lost himself an Attorney General, an Assistant Attorney General and uh, things are a bit of a mess. So what does he do from here? Well, he has to appoint a new special prosecutor. He yep. has to. He does not have the option not to do that. And uh, he picks for the role. or he doesn't. Um, but it suggests <laughs> for the role.
0: Yes, he's called, this is who you yeah, need
1: to pick. A, ch- a chap by the name of Leon Jaworski, Southerner. Very, yep. very well respected. But there were initially Shane. Um, a, a little bit of reticence from the uh, from the reconstituted, they hadn't really gone away, but from the reconstituted Cox team, uh, they were all in place, and they sort of felt that uh, this guy's an old guy, he's not a classic liberal. Uh, he is—he's going to stymie us, basically, He's basically—he's going to be for Nixon.
0: Yeah, uh, and this is where the—the it's—it's this time. Uh, you know, we're up in uh, what November of '73 here. It's this time where you where you get one of the other famous lines in Watergate beyond follow the money. What did the president know? And one day, you know it, but you get Nixon down there and uh, was he in Disney? He's at the Disney resort yes. with the, the, of course, well, I am not a crook. Um, and I mean, the, the, the media is starting to cave in. Uh, well, I, you know, it's the first time I, th- I think, uh, we talked about in the last one, it's the first time where the plurality of the American public did not support Richard Nixon to stay in the White House anymore. And the, the tide was starting to turn again. Well, I mean, the House, the House, of course, coming off the, the Irvin Committee bombshells during the summer was beginning to look at uh, uh, impeachment proceedings. Mm-hmm. And following Nixon's attempts, you, you know, I mean, th- this was a man who embraced television before anybody else, who loved the television medium and mm-hmm. is now trying to use it to save his presidency, and it's not working for him anymore. And he goes to Bork, the man who who finally executes, you know, uh, the Cox's uh, special investigation, and said, look, well, it's the people around Nixon who say, you have to tell him to appoint this new person. You get Jaworski in, who was not Archibald Cox at all. You know, Ar- Archibald Cox, again, this patrician, you know, Eastern establishment friend of the Kennedys. Uh, you know, just uh, oh, man, what a character. Leon Jaworski is your. I don't know. He, he looks like a fucking mob lawyer. I mean, honestly,
1: yeah. <laughs> he does. But he's he's you know he's but he's he's a he's
0: a good career. I mean, this is a man with morals and principles, yeah. and I'm going to do my job.
1: And this is again the problem for Nixon that uh, some of his enemies, well, all of his enemies really, the the ones that hurt him had morals, and he didn't, yep. which made it very difficult for him to counter them, because he couldn't understand why they were doing it. When you have people who are immoral, that they always assume that the, because their motives are often base, they always assume that other people's motives are base. Yeah. So, they think it can be fake. LBJ famously, LBJ famously with the North Vietnamese, what is it that they want? Right. If they tell me what they want, I'll give them it. Well, they want independence and they want you know everyone out of their country um under this communist regime no they don't they don't really want they must there must be some do they want aid do they want money because if they tell me i'll do a deal and that's because that he would have but he didn't understand and it's similar with this right that nixon sort of why are they doing this it's because they believe so jaworski goes in and look he's he said afterwards um uh, there's only really one decent surviving interview with jaworski which came from 1982 it was actually a university uh yep. sat thankfully sat him down and got him on tape and he said look i went into it thinking there's no way it goes to the president right he said because i had that old school respect for the law um and even if it did he thought i struggled to see a way that you can indict a sitting president. And this is something that the US has wrestled with continually. There yeah. are people who think that you should, you just should not ever do it. Um, but then there are people who raise the reasonable counter argument of, so does that mean the president can kill someone and then you can't touch him for it up until he leaves office? Uh, and that kind of takes us into something that we've seen very recently, Shane, of well, course, with Trump.
0: Yeah, Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what, what a what a week this has been. You, you know, I I, I look, I, if you guys listen to any of the other shows besides this one, well, fuck, if you listen to this one, I think you know where I'm at on, on the political spectrum here. But um, this story, you, you know, I, I, look, had fake news been a vogue term back in the 70s, Ziegler and Nixon would have been espousing it every single time they got in front of a camera. Right. Yeah. They, they, but they were a little bit smarter and knew more words than Donald Trump and the people around him um yeah obviously look every every president commits crimes um mm-hmm. it, it it it's part of the jo- it's part Everything of why you want Google. the job it's why you want the job
1: and listen, uh, by the way, just in case you're sitting there going, no, no, my favorite president didn't. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I don't care. Look, look, my
0: My favorite president is probably James K. Polk. James K. Polk committed a lot of crimes.
1: <laughs> yes. Legal war war.
0: Yes. Men. Yes.
1: Stealing country from another. Yeah, Yeah, uh,
0: Mexico, fuck you, go that yeah, way.
1: <laughs> yeah, So, look, uh, they all do because yeah. you have to, because yeah. the world isn't a nice place, and because we, you know, if everybody agreed to respect the rule of law, at high international diplomacy, that would be wonderful, but they don't, and sometimes you've got to cut a comma, and we joked about it on one of our other shows. Famously, the most idealized president of all time is, is Jed Butler, the president from, the fictional president from the West Wing, and he commits a crime to take out Terror. there you go and he commits a crime (laughs) to take out a terrorist and it's illegal and he feels that it's murder but he feels that you know this guy poses too big a danger so they take him out and they lie about it um and this is this is the case you know there's always going to be these things where you've got to make these tough decisions um and there is a difference between that and your average run-of-the-mill though law-breaking uh and the thing with nixon as we've shown, I, th- I hope, on this show, that it was just piling and piling and piling on top of each one. Yeah. Um, now, the, the famous speech Shane mentioned there, and I do think we should mention it, because it's the bit that people know. Well, you know, Nixon, here, look,
0: I'll, I'll drop it in right here, quick. Let me, right. uh, you know, here you go, folks. This is, this is the, uh, the, the famous I'm not crook speech.
1: And I want to say this to the television audience. I
0: made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think too that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned
1: everything I've got. Now- as she mentioned, it's at Disneyland. Oh, the, I mean, <laughs> just that I keep saying it. This is a movie, man. This is just straight from from the script. Right? Uh, Although, uh,
0: uh, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll get to more of these moments over over the coming episodes. here as Nixon's presidency falls apart, but there are so there are so many. I mean, like him playing the fucking piano at the Grand Ole Opry and shit. Yeah. Like it, it, it used. I mean, it is the most unhinged. Like you said, I mean, <laughs> like if somebody came with you with a script with some of the shit that goes on in the final months of Nixon's presence, the shit that he's doing again, this, this is a man famously in control of everything his entire life. But the second he loses Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, the, the people who he really, as we've, yeah, I mean, again, we're talking about the Berlin wall. Everything had to go through them before it ever got to Nixon and everything that Nixon did went through them before it got to everywhere else. And once they're gone, He's, I mean, he's he's like a catering wheel just spinning out of fucking control. He's got no idea totally, where the totally fuck he's at. He is,
1: um, basically, it almost looks like they were the stitching that held all the, the crazy stuffing in, and once they're gone, it just starts piling out. Yeah. Um, now, he has to appoint a new vice president. Um, you remember we talked about Spiro Agnew, and uh, some Democrats actually say, look, if we hold this up, this confirmation, then by law, if there's no vice president and Nixon gets impeached, then it goes to the Speaker of the House, yep. who is, of course, a Democrat guy by the name of Carol Albert. Yep. So let's drag our heels on this, not confirm anyone, and we'll get the presidency. And again... Good people, and we we it's a theme of this show. Would we get this today? Um, Carol Albert, who would be made president under this, remember folks, says, No, that's a coup. That's yeah. not yeah. that 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 isn't democracy, that isn't yep. the law. Don't ever bring this sort of idea. Famously, he says, Don't ever bring me this type of idea again. Yeah. We are not doing that.
0: Well, well, again, you know, it's like Bork going back to Richardson, what you know, asking about the massacre, and Richardson said, Look, you know. I, I told the Senate, I couldn't do this. You know, my, my, my assistant told the Senate he couldn't do it, but you never made that kind of guarantee. And if you don't do this, the function of government is, is mm-hmm. just going to fall apart. And, and that's what you know, Albert does here with, with, with okay. Yeah. He could have been the fucking president easily, yeah, I, I, easily. I mean, because there's, on. there's a way that government works and we have to have somebody in that, because God forbid, fine. Yes. The, you know, Nixon has a heart attack tomorrow and all of a sudden I'm the president. But no one no one voted for me, which of course nobody voted for Gerald Ford either, except for one district in Michigan. But <laughs> uh, you know, we have to have someone in there that that look, for the for the sake of the country that we, you know, we gave our stamp of approval to. Not not only did Dick Nixon get to pick him, but we said, Yeah, all right, we we can deal with Jerry Ford.
1: Mm. And and that was the key thing, because Nixon wanted, first of all, John Connolly, um, who was uh, formerly the the governor of Texas. But John Connolly, very smart guy. you,
0: you, You may remember him as the other man shot when JFK's head exploded. That's right.
1: Other man shot in the in Cannes, Dallas. But very, very smart man. But it was a non-starter because, why? He was uh, a Democrat who had bolted to the Republicans. There was no fucking way the Democrats were ever going to confirm him. So Nixon gets told, look. And also the Republicans don't want an ex-democrat as their leader well no i mean he
0: was was too close with lbj they don't want this guy in there they don't want this
1: guy so both parties were united and there's no chance of that (laughs) sorry john (laughs) a a few other names are put forward and eventually though the democrats go to him and they say look the only person we and the country are going to accept is gerald ford because he's a yeah, you know, he's a nice guy. He's harmless. Yes, he's not gonna. <laughs> he's, he's yeah, kind of simple. <laughs> yeah, basically, he's a, he's a nice guy. He's decent, right? I mean, that that's yeah. the, the one thing that, everybody yes. always says.
0: Yes, it's well, you, you admire him, which means you look up to him, but you still think you're better than him. You oh know?
1: yeah, you they definitely <laughs> think you know. But they, hey, listen, they think. Pick somebody that we can run against. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, oh, they're not so. stupid. Her but so. they, don't, they don't pick a bastard, right? They say, hey, no. look, you know, we need to be able to go back to our constituents and say, yeah, we approved this. And we can't approve some of your guys. Well, most of them, in fact. But nobody really has anything against Gerald Ford, so you can have him. Uh, and Nixon rather grudgingly does. And he has this press conference to talk about that. This was something that became in the increasingly announced thing. He wouldn't do many press conferences. and When he did, it was always with a reason. Kissinger becomes Secretary of State. I'll do a press conference about that. There's trouble in the Middle East. I'll do a press conference about that. And of course at the press conference, what did he get asked about? Watergate. 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 And he would lose his temper. And famously, he does lose his temper. Um, Dan uh, uh, Dan Rather stands up and says, uh, you know, Mr. President, uh, I kind of get the impression that you're angry with a lot of us reporters and there's a wee laugh in the room, and it looks like being one of these tension-cracking moments. And Nixon, with that terrifying fake smile he did when he was absolutely yes. fucking yeah, yeah. Like, raging,
0: like fucking Jack Polans.
1: <laughs> Man, it's it's <laughs> terrifying. Go and look this up, folks. He says to him, "Please don't think that that you arouse my anger, uh, Mister. Rather, uh, because one can only be angry with someone he respects." Yeah. And of course, the, the, you actually hear the collective. Ooh, it's like yeah. school, right? But <laughs> he gets asked about, as Shane said, this is not this. The crook thing is not about Watergate. He gets asked about his tax dealings, which were dodgy, and he gets asked about the spend on basically his private house. In San Clemente, uh, that the government has turned from being a really, really nice beachfront property into a fucking mansion. Okay, I mean, they had millions spent on it under the term security. And yeah. look, you would need extra security for the president. I don't think that landscaping all the gardens, building on a new wing, <laughs> adding in excellent facilities and a pool and all that. Yeah, uh, the, the the, the, the,
0: this is one of the you know pe- people people ask me and David all the time. You see, you know, like, what are some of uh, how is this like Watergate when, when you're talking about you know Donald Trump? This is one of the few times it is. You know, <laughs> the, the, this is this is uh, yeah Nixon. Uh, the, I don't know the, the well. I mean this this is a guy as we talked about in the very first episode, felt like, you know, he'd worked his ass off and had done more than anybody else and never had anything to show for it. And, you know, this is one of the few times where where he kind of went balls to the wall and his balls got fucking hammered to the wall.
1: Yeah, his his view on it was that it kind of was security because it made the president's life easier. And therefore that made the president a better worker. And it's a tenuous argument that you're stretching out into you know it, it doesn't hold up as soon as it can it comes into contact with oxygen i think it begins <laughs> to, to break up but um someone asked him about this and said you know the american people will want to know this and he said well you know again he, he, the righteous indignation it's not that righteous indignation of the checker speech it's not that syrupy actor he loses his yep. temper and because of course any fucking politician in the world does not want to be on camera saying, I am not a crook. Because, of course, <laughs> it means that you're saying that people out there think you are. And yeah. I am not a crook. And there's a, a brilliant, brown story about LBJ in one of his early uh, Senate races where uh, uh, there's someone campaigning against him. And he says to his aides, can we put it that he has sex with barnyard animals? <laughs> and his aide says sir we can't say this guy's a pig fucker no one will believe us and he says nah no but I just want to see him have to deny it <laughs> <laughs> And it's basically that you don't give your opponents because once you've done that, you know, the word crook is now out there and he put yeah. it there. But he's losing his temper, he's losing his place. He doesn't yeah. want to be asked about Watergate. He said one year of Watergate's enough and no one is buying it. In fact, it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And yeah. he's isolated, he deliberately isolated, but now is when it really starts to happen because he will not listen to his lawyers. His lawyers are telling him. You're gonna have to give up these tapes at some point he says no I never will and it becomes then this invention of his own reality
0: and yeah, yeah. that's
1: what causes this to to spiral he continually thinks there is a way out
0: no and, and yeah I mean he, he's, he, he, he's he's searching through a room filled with trap doors with no lights on you know yeah. and, and I mean there's one yes fine there might have been one perfect path in which he could have Somehow, seen himself out to January twentieth, nineteen seventy seven, mm-hmm. but there were nine thousand fucking trapdoors in between there, yeah. and uh, and every time he, I mean, it was like he fell down one every single time he opened his mouth after this.
1: Well, that's uh, it was probably compounding. You know, goes yeah. back to the, There's a cancer in the presidency, and it, it's it's compounding. Yeah. This is exactly what what Dean meant with this. Now, yeah. all all of this is going on in the background. Jaworski is with his team. And yeah. with, you know, with
0: Archibald Coxes, I mean, he does preserve these the the special prosecutors yeah. of, it. yeah.
1: And there are people now. You know, the the evidence is really, really mounting up, and they're getting closer. They have Dean who's speaking to them, of course. They have yeah. the tapes that they are certain will confirm what he wanted to 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 know. And it becomes just increasingly difficult for Nixon to. To be able to, to govern really yeah. um, he is drinking too much yeah. and famously of course uh, one night the British Prime Minister Ted Heath calls up uh, for a scheduled chat and can't get the President so they, they call the Secretary of State Henry Kissinger says ah no, nah, he's, he's loaded yeah. Um yeah. I said oh, ask him if, if I'll do basically you know I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, well, will he be happy enough to speak to me but the, the don't t- just say the president is under the weather yeah, see,
0: indisposed uh, or, you
1: know. <laughs> yeah he said but you know that, that we can't we can't put him on he'll start world war three and yeah. that's that's the danger because these, these guys are human beings well uh, well,
0: and, well and again i mean there, there were moments like this prior to watergate where you know he wasn't as bad then but haldeman was the one that would stand in the way between nixon pushing the button yeah. and he's not there and and think you know well like Henry Kissinger is a horrible fucking human being. We've talked about this on the show. We talk about it on all of our shows. Anytime he comes up, the man has killed millions of people in his life, but he did stand between Nixon and a lot of bad things in the final months of his presidency. And that's one of the few things I will ever give Henry Kissinger credit for.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we get to to Christmas, uh, and Nixon... Writes on the back of one of his legal pads on New Year's Eve, last New Year's Eve as president? Question mark? Uh, And of course it it would be. So there's there's again this this battle, Shane, between he does kind of know I think, you know, he knows it's inevitable but he's Nixon, he cannot not fight, he cannot not continue until it is absolutely hopeless and at this point, remember, a president will always have sycophants around him Billy Graham the, the minister was spending a lot of time on telling them to fight on. There were still a lot of the country that didn't want to go and they would form action groups like... Uh, the committee for fair treatment of president nixon and things like that and they would come and see him uh yeah. and he he was always thinking you know right okay I, I i can still get these people on side i can still it's the media it's you know the liberal elite it's all these forces these dark sinister forces that are against me but it takes a big turn for the worst at the end of january one of the campaign aides, one of the creep aids Guy by the name of Herbert Poulter. You don't get names like that these days, do you? Don't, don't, don't <laughs> yeah, get a no, lot no, of Herbert. No, there's
0: no more Herberts. No. No, nah, we don't get a okay, Look, look you, need, you need Warren's. You need Herberts. You need Calvin's. Mm-hmm. You, you need, need these, these uh, kind of men.
1: <laughs> Wesley's. You know, we need to bring these names back. Um, he pleads guilty to perjury. Now, this is then an admission that not only did I lie under oath, but I was told to lie under oath. And then a huge bombshell. February 25th, 1974, uh, Nixon's own lawyer, Helbert Kambach, agrees to plead guilty to two charges of illegal campaign activities. Now, this, the stink of this, this is his, this is not John Dean, the White House counsel. This is President Nixon's long-term lawyer, Admitting the, that this is one of his California
0: boys. I mean, yeah, this is, the, this is he, Nixon's he, buddy. This is his personal attorney. But, he yeah. has
1: been up to no Now, a random California lawyer is not getting involved in illegal presidential <laughs> activities <laughs> without the president telling yeah. him to do so. And Nixon is now under a world of hot. And yeah. uh, next time, Shane, I think we are going to delve right into the you mentioned it there. Next week's going to be an epic one and a breathless unraveling.
0: Yeah, March first, uh, grand jury indicts. Well, you're your big ones. You got Haldeman, Erickman, Mitchell, Colson, uh, Strack, uh, uh, Fuck how, uh, Strawn, Gordon Strawn.
1: Uh, his yep. name is actually Gold- Stracken. Gordon Strawn, yes.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, what? what Mardian and, and uh, Ken Parkinson. They, they, this is the Watergate Seven. If you've if you've ever heard this one. They, they, they are all indicted, and there's an eighth, eighth name on this list who's uh, held back, who's who's could kept you, under seal. Could,
1: could you explain this? Um, the eighth person. Uh, I won't do the spoiler. I'll let Shane reveal it to you. He is named in a sealed. This is not made public. No, right. This is yep. this is that's one thing. But he, of course, it's eventually leaked. Because <laughs> of course it is. Yep. Um, but he is named as an unindicted co-conspirator. I think you can guess who it is, folks. But Shane. What is an unindicted co-conspirator?
0: Well, I, I, we saw this again to tie it back to modern times. Trump was named as an unindicted co-conspirator on a on a number of cases during his time in office. So, you well, in this case, this is what we were talking about with Jaworski. That his his argument was that uh, you couldn't indict the president while he was in office. You had to wait till he was out. And Nixon was, well just as guilty of these crimes as the seven men who were indicted on March 1st, but they felt like they couldn't charge him until he had left the office of the white house. And so Nixon is the eighth name on this list that, uh,
1: Oh God. (laughs) So
0: yeah, no, I I think, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think you guys have seen, you know, I mean, look, look at our show on the Irving Committee, right? You know, we we spent, what, an hour and a half on that, and that was all of, what, seven weeks in this whole story?
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and if you think from March 1st until, look, th- th- this is the anniversary this this. August 9th, 1974 was the day Dick walked out of the White House and got in Marine One, famously flashed up the peace sign and took off. Uh, you know, that you think we don't have like another five episodes in this oh, yeah, yeah. over the, over the five months there are left yeah, in Nixon's presidency. Don't, Trust
1: don't me. Feel, <laughs> we do. We, we haven't we even do. got to, we haven't even got to Al Haig's performance during yes. this time as well. God. To put it into, to, to put it into to what Al Haig is like as a person folks. Um, <laughs> when Gerald Ford, he had of course been, he is at this point Nixon's uh, chief of staff. And when Gerald Ford takes over, Again, spoiler, but when Gerald Ford becomes the the president, uh, there's a transition. Ford will have his own chief of staff, but yeah. he, you know, Hague helps with transition, and he gives him a speech. He asks Hague, "Could you write me a speech to deliver to the the White House staff on my first day?" Hague says, "Certainly," and in it, he includes, Hague does a section on thanking General Haig for his incredible hard work and organization <laughs> over the last few days. He does it himself <laughs> Now that's the kind of son of a bitch that you are dealing with here folks and he will begin to play a really put, there are questions about him, etc. Yeah. But this is all for the future because as, as Shane says, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna deal with it in one week because everything starts to nah, there's, now there's
0: yeah there's so much i mean like this, uh, there, there was there, a little
1: lull in this time period here there's yeah. a little lull when it yeah. was all going on in the background now it explodes into the yeah background. it comes
0: right back out and, and you know I, I just want i want to take this back around to where, to where we started here in terms of the media um because again look i i left journalism for a number of reasons um one i mean honestly it started feeling slightly more dangerous than it used to do i i I, you know, when I first started doing this, I didn't get letters taped to the uh, door of my office saying that the, the streets would run red with, uh, with, with people like me. Um, and, and that started to become a thing during Trump's presidency, which was uh, horrifying, to put it lightly. Um, there were people, Bob Woodward among them, who I, I think Bob Woodward from 1972 would be disgusted in Bob Woodward in 2020. Because he had information that was critical that the American people needed to know about the presidency of Donald Trump. Him, Maggie Haberman there from from the New York Times, um, that they held on to to be able to write fucking books, to make money off the back of books. And when, you know, we've talked so much throughout the series of people, people and their principles overrode. The, the selfish interests of, of people in government, you know, look, you, you don't you don't get you don't have a lot of Harry Truman's anymore who get into this shit because they feel like it's what they need to do, you know, and, and Truman famously became corrupted, too. I mean, the, the the long story about him leaving the White House poor is bullshit. The motherfucker walked out rich as fuck. Um, but the journalists in this era did not engage in the kind of self-preservation and, well, just, just what we see going on today. And, look, I, I get it. Again, I was there. I understand the need in this industry now. Like Gannett, who owns a number of papers over there in the UK and, and obviously hundreds of papers over here, went through a massive round of layoffs today. I have a lot of friends that I used to work with that lost their job this morning. So I understand that part of it. But Bob Woodward is not someone – that needs to live in that kind of a life and that kind of shell and that kind of protectionist attitude and that kind of self-promotionist attitude. And that's why I say Bob Woodward today, the Bob Woodward from October of 1972, who was dragging John Mitchell through the fucking ringer
1: mm-hmm.
0: would be disgusted with the Bob Woodward that shows up on CNN every fucking fifth day today. And yeah, but it's, then, it,
1: you know, that, that's angry young man, though. I mean, it, yeah. it, I, I don't think it's healthy for you, to be honest. To I, you, I i don't think so either, but... Other, otherwise, you turn into Norman Mailer. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I i think otherwise it seeps into But I think at some point in your life, you accept those bad things in the world. And yep. That there's not a lot you can do about it and no. I think you know people say that to me about, about certain things they're like oh you know 15 years ago you were raving and ranting about that well one I was full of cocaine 15 years yeah. ago um, <laughs> I mean I was raving and ranting about everything and, uh, If you watch two uh, folks,
0: there's still Sky interviews out there you can go watch them. Yeah <laughs> Jesus
1: fuck um, you know you can see the guy with the dark bags under his eyes who hasn't slept for three days uh, but you know you, you you do what I will say about uh, I, I certainly have always preferred Woodward uh, Bernstein. Uh, I think Woodward's a better reporter, but I think yeah. Bernstein seems a better bloke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And... Car-
0: Car- Carl Bernstein could sit down and have a drink. Well, not you, know, yeah. you but not, you know. Yeah. I could have a
1: Diet Coke with <laughs> yes, him. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yes. Buy him a drink. Uh, yeah. While well, well, he chain
0: he, smokes 9,000 cigarettes.
1: <laughs> whereas if you look at someone, you know, Ben Bradley, and it, folks, there's a wonderful Ben Bradley documentary about his life, and I urge you all to go and look at it. Yep. Ben Bradley is one cool mofo, right? Yeah. He, he looks great. He had an amazing life. He did, you know, he was in the intelligence service in the war. And then he was a pal with John F. Kennedy in the Rat Pack. And then he was the editor of the Washington Post during, you know, journalism's golden age. He was in a movie, you know, he he was played in a movie by an amazing actor who won an Oscar for it. He was he was incredibly cool guy. But he became the establishment yeah zero zero doubt and, and he's been played yeah. by tom hanks now in a movie is yeah. jesus what a what a lineup you know yeah. all he's missing is james stewart really to, to <laughs> <come back and laughs>
0: well hey the, the the way they're whipping out the holograms now don't don't put it past uh, them uh, <laughs> well, I mean, if, but, they, if they could dig up peter cushing they can dig up jimmy stewart
1: uh, <laughs> and he'd be there you know in his tailor and he's tailoring ass of shirts and just looking a million dollars and the guy was was tremendous but he became the establishment because yeah. I, I don't think you can avoid becoming no. the establishment? If uh, I mean, no, if you're there long. for that
0: long at that position. Yeah. I mean, wh- yeah, wh- when I- there's nowhere else to go, you know, wh- Woodward never aspired to editorial position. So there was nowhere else for him to go in his career. And so, yeah, you just kind of slide into to that, I don't know, a- elder statesman role, you know, of, of your field. And uh, Bradley did it. Woodward did it. Mean, I- Ber- Ber- Bernstein's avoided it. Uh, he's, he's not going full Hunter Thompson. But but he's avoided it somewhat.
1: Yeah, he. I think there has always been that that air of the the much more anti-establishment guy. But I think yeah. he did believe in the counterculture. I yeah. think he did believe yeah. in that. I, Woodward never did. And no. To be fair, never claimed he did. You know, Woodward was not going to show up wearing you know unkempt and you Know with the hair, oh well, he was buttoned down. He, yeah. you know, he was uh, what do you call it, please? Banana Republic. He was, <laughs> you know, th- this was who he was. He was preppy, yeah. he was buttoned down, he was Republican. Um, he was never going to be that guy, and I think that, that Bernstein retained that. What I agree with Shane though, on one thing, the only thing missing from his legacy and from maybe both their legacy, and as they get you know into. It's not unfair to say. I mean, they were young men fifty years ago, so clearly they're not young men now, and they're not going to be about forever. Is sit down and you will you will be legends forever. There's nothing anyone can do about that now. But sit down and give it some credit. You know, put, bring yep. you know bring the guys back in who deserved it. These two guys didn't bring down a president on their own. In fact, no. as we've said repeatedly through this, there was one guy who brought in this president and it was th- that president. Um, but, you know, just one little thing, just share a wee bit of the credit, just say that, you know, look, this guy's been writ- airbrushed from history yeah. and he should be back in. Uh, and well, I think well, that listen, that you know, I mean, crowning achievement.
0: No, 100%. You know, and just, I said, Barry Sussman, I can't mention him enough. And by all means, everybody, go look up, go find his book, go find everything he ever did. He died 49 years, 349 days after the Watergate break-in. And for, I don't know, 47 and a half of those years, he was whitewashed from the history of it. And he's a man that without without him, Nixon sees out his term, without Barry Sussman, there there, is, there isn't Watergate. You know?
1: No. Um, and it is that simple. And the yep. idea that... That it 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 was just these two, you know, if Hirsch doesn't get his exclusives when he got them, if the Miami Herald doesn't yep. get their exclusives when they got them. This was a collective effort. Uh and I think that it's time that we because 'cause they'll always have the book in the movie. They will yep. um yep. one of the most entertaining books that you will read, and incidentally, folks, people always go to all the president's men. Uh the far more entertaining one, uh, that that's far better written and has less kind of door-knocking detail in it is (laughs) Final Days um, which is, you know, it tells you the story but also encapsulate the the frantic last few weeks written by Woodward and Bernstein but it's also full of bollocks you know, there's also a lot of stuff in there that is absolute bullshit Well, yeah, Uh, I mean, you
0: start buying in your own myths
1: That's exactly what happened, yes Um, and that, I I think, is, is key that everyone in this uh I'm trying to think. The only person I think in this whole story who comes out of it absolutely shining clean are Elliot Richardson and Bill Ruckel's house. I think <laughs> everyone else worked an angle at some point. And it's yeah. not bad and I'm not condemning them for it. But, you know, human beings are human beings. Nobody, the, the almighty is perfect. The rest of us aren't. <laughs> All right, that that'll do it for the uh,
0: for the sixth episode here in the series. Again, if for some reason you're just picking it up now, there's five episodes before this. If uh, you need to listen to them all at once, I did put out a supercut. You can go find everything. Uh, said that you know next episode we're coming back and we're we're starting on that. Well, the final rapid descent of Nixon's presidency and 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 oh God, man, it's 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 painful <laughs> to watch. Yeah,
1: it, of the course. Pa- uh, it's painful, but yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, yeah, God. Uh, David, you can find on everything at heart and hand. Of course, you can find him on Twitter, IbroxRox, or at DavidAEdgar23. Thanks again, yeah, David.
1: Uh, if you want to talk to me about Rangers, then IbroxRox, if you want to talk to me about Watergate or anything else, it's uh, uh, unfootball-related, then DavidAEdgar23 uh, on Twitter. I'll oh, happily... Chat away to anyone, especially about this, because yes. uh, you know Shane and I. Like I say, most people could have wrapped their story up in four weeks, folks. <laughs> not us. We're not no. capable of that. No. Nope. Well, well no, no, it, it,
0: and again, I, I hate to bring it to you, at some point here toward the end. We're probably going to do a live show, so y'all can come in and, and ask us a few questions and whatever yeah. the hell you think we didn't get to. So, uh, me, of course, you can find on Twitter at Avoid. If you want to help out the crow pod, there's a buy me a coffee link down here in the show notes. Hit up. And yeah, we'll we'll be back for episode seven with the Watergate seven. Look at look at that synchronicity. I oh my god. It's it's almost like we planned this out and we fucking didn't at all. Really? I that promise doesn't... you. <laughs> so we'll talk to y'all then. Thank you, bye. It is just too tricky for a jump like me to you. Oh you you take that subcommittee serious, boy, and I'm serious, you just might get a seizure from the evening news. Oh.